Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Insider, brought to you just for a change by Vanishing Ink. Now, if I listed all of my next guest's accomplishments, we wouldn't have room for any questions. He won Young Magician of the Year and is now a gold star member of the Inner Magic Circle. Along with huge success performing on stage and television, he also invents and creates magic for stage, film and television. He's made things like cars and flies appear. He's done Britain's Got Talent, America's Got Talent and Champions, performed as part of the Impossible Ensemble in the West End, Dubai, Singapore and the Philippines. His act has also graced the Royal Albert Hall, the London Palladium and Wembley Arena. His creations have been seen in dozens of West End plays. He taught magic to Gandalf. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Ben Hart. Ben, how are you this afternoon? I'm very well, thank you. I am sitting in the sun while well, in, in my house in the sun and actually it is quite nice to have some time off in amongst all this madness well that's a good thing um what's your origin story you've got 37 seconds firstly an origin story is like how a superhero is made right mm-hmm. is that right okay fine mm-hmm. that's a very hard question have the second started already <laughs> <laughs> yes no. now we're on about 19 Something, something, magic set, something, something. exactly. No, I got into magic. (laughs) It's the same old story, only for me, what hooked me was, I don't know what the initial starting point of my interest in magic was, but I know from a young age, I was taking magic books out of my local library and um, buying magic tricks from toy shops or a little, there was a little online, uh, a little um, market stall in Covent Garden that had a few little magic tricks. I remember buying things like the haunted matchbox and stuff like that. And then... And then I was part of the Young Magicians Club at the Magic Circle and started working with people to put together competition acts and that sort of thing. And at that time, the mentors in the Young Magicians Club were people like Ali Bongo, people with brilliant magical minds. And that was quite an amazing thing to be surrounded by. And by the time I was in school, I thought, I don't really care about schoolwork. I'm likely to be a magician no matter what. And there you are. You said in an interview... I do feel within myself that magic should be making more of a statement about the world. Can you talk about that? How can magic make a statement? Well, magic is an intersection, isn't it, between lots of different things, between technology and engineering and psychology and comedy and acting and whatever. I mean, you choose almost anything. We can find it within magic. And in all of these other fields, we say something about the world, you know, the world of uh, any creative pursuit should be pushing to say something about what is happening in this very moment, this moment of time and space. In magic, unfortunately, we don't really do that. And I don't know why that is. I mean, yes, of course, some people are making plots that are contemporary, but it's quite rare to see a magic show and to feel like you really understood that performer's perception of the world. Usually, most magicians' characters are distilled down into very basic terms, like, okay, to use the standard example... I'm a funny guy that does tricks. You know, that's not a character and that's not saying anything about the world. So, uh, which is a shame because of course we all as individuals have an awful lot to say about our understanding of the world and our beliefs and we don't say it on stage. I suspect that's what I was hinting at in that question. Although I suspect my answer here is equally as obscure. No, it's not obscure at all. It's perfectly clear. You write and design and invent and direct and perform. Um, do you have a favorite? No, I think there's virtually no difference between them, in fact. I think that, you know, uh, you could argue that that they're all identical. That in all of them, a show happens. It just happens in different places, okay? If you're the, if you're the performer, your, your show is what the audience sees there, okay? If you're the director, uh-huh. your show is 
the show you put on to get the performer to the place where you want them to be. As a performer, right, right, right. you want to move your audience somewhere. You want them to leave that environment moved. As a director, you want the actor or, or magician, whoever it might be that you're working with, to leave that space moved. As an inventor, you want the the product the, or the project to move from one place to another. All you're doing in all of those things is trying to move something to somewhere else. <laughs> so it's all really the same, isn't it? I mean, we're also we're dealing the idea of magic, whatever that means. It's quite a complicated and rich idea. In all of them, we're only striving to create a further feeling of magic. Now, that further feeling of magic might be created by realizing that the solution to a problem is a piece of Velcro. And as an engineering solution, that brings that thing you're working on closer to looking like magic. And as a director, you want to bring the act that you're working on to look more like real magic. And as a performer, mm -hmm. you want to make your audience, your work look more like real magic. It's all really the same thing, I think. I don't, don't think there's yeah. much difference. So I, I, yeah. I don't prefer one to the other. I mean, generally speaking, I like um, situations where I can slash and burn i like the ability to make something and then destroy it and so i get to do that more in when i'm working behind the scenes than i do in my own shows because in my own shows of course i have the i, I have to deliver the show largely the same night on night because i have a team of people that need that rely on my accuracy in order to make sure. the show work so i quite like being in a rehearsal room with no rules where i can say well let's just scratch that and start again and see where we go Fair. Um, back to working with Gandalf. Um, I've seen McKellen on stage many times um, and he's got a magic of his own just when he walks onto mm -hmm. a stage. Um, you may have taught him magic, but what did you learn from him when you were working well, with him? Well, I actually, I actually learned about um, the conservation of energy. So okay. if you take a, let's just use a different example instead of magic. Magic is so slippery and hard to talk about. Let's just say you're a, a painter and some great painter, or okay, some amateur painter is asked to paint some flowers, okay? They might go deep within the detail and try to find, oh, well, there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of a thorn there on the stem, better put that in my drawing of it. And it might take them hours. Whereas if you look at the paintings of the flowers by somebody like, Picasso or Matisse or something, somebody great, they can do that with a single brushstroke. It's this idea of confidence and conservation of the needed energy, right? So you don't go around wasting the energy if you don't need to, right? If I, I, I'm a magician and I say they're flowers, therefore they're flowers. Whereas uh, that's, a, and that's a confidence thing, which I suppose in the case of some truly great actor as McKellen is, that comes from knowing how much energy needs to be used. It's right. pointless to waste right. energy. It, 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 that, you see this very often with magicians. We're always given the wrong advice. People will always say, you've got to come out high energy, wham, bam, wow the socks off them. It's rubbish, absolute rubbish. Use the right amount of energy for the job. If magic was real, how much energy would it need? So um, that's what I learned from seeing McKellen grapple things like, uh, I was teaching him to uh, produce an egg from a, puff of smoke from a cigarette or a cigar or something and he just reached up and pulled the egg out of the air it was like like it was if you're a magician that's that's easy isn't it just all you're doing is making an egg appear so anyway, that's what i learned about uh, from mckellen is use the right amount of brush strokes you don't need to use more than you need it's abracadabra that um i i create as i speak or whatever it is 
you've yeah, got yeah. to think, well, there you go, abracadabra, there you go, they're flowers now. And does that apply, do you think that applies to method as well? Definitely, definitely. I've noticed that this is something that you see in very technical and advanced study of sleight of hand, like, you know, Vernon talks about breaking the wrist to make a mm-hmm. hand that's got something palmed look more, to contrive it to look more empty. By more empty. Exactly, yeah. So, yes, that's definitely about trying to display to the audience that you're not using many brush strokes, that you're not, um, you're not too caught up in detail. So, yeah, I think it applies to method, definitely. And it certainly applies to complicated uh, magic that relies on complicated, for example, machinery. You want to distill that thing down into the fewest number of moving parts. In magic, we seem to strive towards having complicated equipment because it appeals to the kind of gadgety sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we all like the new shiny toy. Absolutely. And, you know, people like reading Tommy Wonder to look at all the little fiddly gadgets and all that sort of stuff now absolutely there's a place for those if you can get them working perfectly but in all probability uh, a simple solution is better mr steinmeier writes really really uh, well about this idea that when you distill a magic trick down it might end up being nothing more than a piece of thread and a paper clip that's when magic's really beautiful when well you see in magic there's this thing about the opposites i think about it in opposites so a very extraordinary claim of a magic trick really deserves a simple secret because that means there's the greatest possible distance between the method and the plot. And the greater the distance between the method and the plot, the less likely the audience are to perceive it. So if you make right. some extraordinarily large, difficult claim, the audience expects difficult, complicated solutions to solve that problem. If you can solve that problem with something simple, like the extraordinary claim of I'm going to bend a spoon with the power of my mind, the audience might think, oh, sneaky magicians using gallium and a soldering iron up his sleeve, when really you bent it when they weren't looking, Right. Uh, then that's good. They're, they're unlikely to, to, to come upon that method because it seems so disconnected from the plot that you're trying to express. And it's the same in reverse. A very simple plot might benefit from a complicated method. For example, a simple plot might be, I'm going to cut four races out of this shuffle pack. Now, the audience might think, oh, he's just going to, and you might be better off using a more complicated method like a whatever a stripper deck or whatever it might be so that you again you're bringing the method further away from the perception of the plot so that's i suppose a very long tangent related to how you can use your brush strokes sure um the egg trick incubation mm. um is probably the piece you're most well known for and i remember when you did it on bgt i had friends texting me in shock it <laughs> yeah. looks like real magic yeah what is it like from your perspective do you get to see the audience's faces well, sort of slowly melt yeah i mean that trick you know i'm not the first person to do the egg on fan no. in fact it's it's hundreds of years old it's in some of the earliest books on magic and it first appears as far as i'm aware in the english language in uh downs's Art of Magic, which is like 19, whatever, 1910 or something, I don't know. Um, I'm probably totally wrong there. Anyway, the to me, the trick seemed a bit kind of hokey. It seemed a bit like I didn't, I wouldn't care about it. Like, why on, why the hell did these, why has the magician got these props? Anyway, there were lots of problems to solve. But I knew that in, within it somewhere was something special within the texture of the props. It was doing that trick that made me understand how to, supercharge all my other material 
So that trick was a sort of lucky break for me in terms of my understanding of what audiences want or perhaps what they need. And I really learned an awful lot about timing and and how to make your magic very memorable from that trick. And yes, I do get to watch people absolutely melt. Unfortunately for me, uh, I did it on TV and a lot of people saw it. So it's lost a certain element of it's sort of lost a bit of edge. Right. now. But that will come back in time. People are people so. are quick to forget. So in, in a year's time or so, I'm sure we'll be back to how it originally was. And um, yes, I mean, I have for the last couple of years made a living out of that trick. I was I've done those gigs that, you know, we hear about and don't believe can exist where you get flown around the world for extortionate fees to go and do one trick. I've had all of those from that. Let's talk about creativity. There will be magicians listening to this who want to be more creative. Maybe they saw Harrison Greenbaum's lecture on our Share Magic Live yesterday about creativity, but they don't don't know where to start. What advice would you give to those magicians? They, They know they should be more creative, but they don't know where to start. Well, that's a very hard question, isn't it? Um, I mean, what my my I suppose stance on it is: let's just assume that everybody's equally as creative as everybody else. Yes, you know, I believe so that, that's that, the case. Exactly. We don't have any evidence to suggest what do we even know what creativity even is. And so, given that we mm-hmm. don't have that, for the sake of our sanity, let's assume we're all as creative as each other. And so, if everybody's as creative as everybody else, then all that matters is uh, your working practice. So. I mean, I suspect magicians or indeed anybody who feel inside themselves that they're not creative enough, I suspect they're not putting any time into sitting and thinking. It seems to me when I when I talk to magicians and work with magicians, magicians do a lot of talking and very little doing. So if the aim is, you know what, I want to come up with a new trick. Well, as you know, let's park that for a second. Coming up with a new trick is its whole other own thing. Let's just say I want to write a new script for a trick that's a creative script well sit down and write it that is my only advice everybody i ever speak to well not everybody but a lot of people i speak to say oh ben we saw your show we really like the way it's written and scripted how do you do it i'm working on my own show and i'm struggling with it okay well send me your script and they haven't even bothered to write it down or even think about it you have to start somewhere. You know, you've got a lump, metaphorically, you have a lump of clay, you want to make a pot. Well, at some point, you've got to start making a pot. You have to, we're, we're sculpting with words in the case of scripting. In order to do that, you, you've got to start sculpting with your words, start putting the brush on the page, start doing stuff. So then once you realize that you can do it, or once you get enough, once you get enough, um, creativity is like holding water in cupped hands. Right, it's constantly trickling out, and the only way that you can hold on to it is to store it. You've got to put it in your little jars or whatever, right? So you go, I've got half an idea. I have an idea right now. I had it today. I wrote it down, and I stuck it somewhere, okay? It might be years before that I, I, that idea slots into place, but there will be a time, because it happens all the time in our lives, when you go, that is the answer to the problem, has been literally sitting there all along. So all creativity is, is facing the fact that you have ideas, which we all do, and documenting them. So you've got an idea for a card trick where the cards turn to dust. Okay, write down cards turn to dust. Okay, later on, you've got a card trick where where as part of that, you can switch the deck. You might think, why don't I switch the deck for the cards that can be dust or whatever it might be? You know, you have to document these things. 
And it's true of lyricists, say, you know, they're coming up with little phrases or poets or whatever it might be. Or you come up with a little phrase, you document it, and later on you piece it together like a puzzle. I mean, also, you can improve your creativity by improving your the, the breadth of your interests. You know, in magic, we have a thing where, I, I mean, I've got it more than most people listening. We've got the magic bug. We're addicted to it. We love it. We're absorbed in it. We're saturated in it. And um, that's fine. But creativity also can be found outside of magic. Sure. And also, the creativity outside of magic isn't all from straight white men, which is what most of magic is. You know, the creativity you can find outside of magic can be from people with much more, um, many different perspectives on life and different depth of knowledge. So, yeah, I mean, a conversation with an artist who is working in a, in light sculpture or something will reveal something to you as a magician. And so sometimes it's good to go out of your way to watch something or listen to something or read something that might not really have appeared on your radar. And it's, it's also good to establish a sort of team of team of uh, people of similar mindset who you can share these things with. I have many friends who we all work in different fields, but we're sharing like well, I mean, we've got YouTube, of course. We share, like, a YouTube video of, oh, did you see this interview with that person? Or, well, look at this amazing old film. Or, have you seen that thing? You know, and we're keeping the wheels as of creativity trying to turn. I also believe that creativity can really never exist with one person. Creativity comes out of conversations. Uh, if you want to be creative as an individual, you have to find a way to have a conversation with yourself. If you're not ready for that, then have conversations with other people. How many times have we all been with our friends and thought, oh, wow, we're so funny. We should write a sitcom, right? Well, yeah, you probably are really funny, probably. You're talking to somebody else. If someone documented it, it would probably be really good. But then, of course, you go home and you think, oh, I'm going to write that, and it's all gone again. It's very hard to be creative when you're staring at yourself and just trying to reflect on yourself. It's why performers should have directors. It's why... Singers should have vocal coaches. It, you know, it's why actors in films learning accents have dialect coaches. A conversation happens and an editing process happens through that. Fair, fair. Let's move on to the book, um, The Darkest Corners, which is um, on sale today. I was lucky enough to get an early copy of the book. And one thing that struck me above everything else, every single trick in the book sounds like something that could happen in a Harry Potter film. It reads and looks like real magic. Um, and we spoke about incubation already. A piece of paper becomes an egg. But listen to some of these. You make a plant come to life. You yeah. regurgitate named lottery balls from your mouth. You make a card disappear, teleport and appear inside a spectator's hand. You predict someone's name inside of a walnut. I guess the first question really is, how? These tricks are so unique and and out of the box, how do you come up with them? Are you typically led by effect or method? I think really, as the world moves forwards in a way that's quite uh, terrifying, <laughs> speaking from my sort of isolation here, where I haven't really been able to do magic for quite a while, for real people, many things will change about what magic is and what it represents. And from my point of view, something I made a very conscious decision about was to try to eliminate any magic that felt like it was even close to touching on technology 
because I just don't think as magicians we'll ever be able to keep up with that. You know, great, okay, there's some cool iPhone tricks or there's some cool mentalism methods. Fine, that's somebody else's game to play. It's not one that appeals to me. I don't really like technology. So from my point of view, I thought, right, okay, well, where can I focus my mind? And I quite like the idea of being able to manipulate nature. So I started putting, making my shows virtually entirely about that. Uh, and so I often look at a trick and I think, well, how can I make this, how can I make this feel more like, I'm not, I'm not interested if a magician can make uh, something that was man-made change into something else that was man-made, right? Because to me, that's, you know, it's like a, tra it's tra a transformer, it's whatever. It, I don't, I don't, it's not that interesting for me. Whereas, you know, if you can reveal uh, something, someone's mother's maiden name written in the, the veins on a leaf on a tree that they pluck, themselves or something you know well that's that's it feels like real magic for me that's much more interesting than revealing it written in an envelope or on a notes page on an iphone or something the plots are, uh you know we have sort of ubiquitous plots in magic predictions or transformations or whatever they might be but if you can make them feel like they happen to like you're dealing with nature, you're messing with the very, very fabric of reality. You're challenging someone's beliefs, be they religious or scientific. It, you get more into the world of natural phenomena. You get more into a kind of, well, I mean, I can only speak from my experience. I found my audiences are quite swept away by tricks when I make them about something which hints at something bigger. Right. The implications of revealing a word written on a scroll of paper that's been inside a walnut that was chosen randomly from the audience are quite big. Because yeah, yeah, firstly, yeah. the audience knows, well, firstly, the method makes it virtually impossible to figure out. I, of course, I have a slight bias there, it's my method, but, but, <laughs> but even so, the method is quite invisible. But the second thing is the, the questions that raises are so big. How did that get in a walnut? Why is it in a walnut? What? what is that person a stooge? Well, no, they can't be. That's already an interesting conversation for the audience to be having in their head. Uh, is the walnut real? Well, it must be. It behaved like a walnut. Did, like, did he, how do you get it in there? Does he opened up the walnut and glued it in? That was great too. That's a nice image for the audience to have. The idea of me sitting backstage preparing the walnuts is also good. Has he grown it inside the walnut? Even better. You know, the questions that are asked are so, so, fascinating to me magic is just good magic is always just on the, the the tipping the cusp of like kind of insanity isn't it what we do as magicians <laughs> is is we're so detached from reality we expect the audience to come into our game and pretend like and, and confront our eccentricities and so for me i want my material to really be like that i want them to really think yeah. wow this is just totally bizarre but the thing is, there's, there's a difference, and, and this is one of um, style or, dare, or perhaps taste. There's a difference between being like an, a surrealist, an unusual magician, and being that like weird, overly kooky kind of character that's grating. So you have to you have to get that walk that line very carefully. You have to make it feel like this guy's 
got uh, eccentricities prepared to show us, but we're happy to learn about them. <laughs> we're not we're not actually uncomfortable being right. in the same room as him. <laughs> exactly. And so that that means you know your marketing package has to be one where the audience knows that you're also good company. <laughs> Our European listeners will know that you became very very well known during BGT and since then have toured all over the world. But until now you've never really shared your material with magicians. What changed your mind? Well, um, hmm. I think it's quite a hard question to answer in a lot of ways. Uh, my understanding of what magic is and what good practices, what good practice within magic is, has changed an awful lot over the years. And I have realized that really it's through sharing magic and sharing ideas that we can all improve. And I have virtually no uh, ego when it comes to people doing my material that, that doesn't bother me in the slightest bit I'm not offended by that or upset by that um, I am aware of the fact that some of the some of the work that I've had success with other people will be will want to find see if that helps them on their road to their whatever success they wish for and if you're the type of person who wants to to do some of the tricks that you may or may not see me doing, then if you're going to do them, you might as well learn them from me. Um, sure. I, <laughs> I wanted to learn about them myself. And so by engaging in a collaborative process to write the book with Neil, uh, I have learned so much about myself and my material that that has been incredibly uh, useful. Really, the exercise has been a selfish exercise. Selfish, right? <laughs> well, I mean, really it has, because we, we've, sh we've shone this light onto this material and discovered all these things that even I wasn't aware that I was doing. And Neil Kelser, who wrote the book is so smart and so like, um, artistically astute and sensitive and aware of what, why choices were made and, and how to write about those that I think that, uh, even if you would not to do the material in the book, I think you would learn more about what, what is the, what what can motivate us as magicians and why we're doing it so very roundabout answer to the, to the question but we've got to share stuff and i was very unsure of share I, I don't like to share things on video because given my sort of profile at the moment it didn't seem appropriate for me to be sharing right. my secrets in that form but in a book, it, it asks, it's a different kind of engagement with the material that I ask of the reader. We ask the reader to engage uh, their brain. It's not just, mm -hmm. it, it, it's not... Um, Popcorn. Yeah, exactly. It's not like, it, yeah, it's not sort of like pornographic exposure. Mm. It's a discussion that you're part of. It's, it's a conversation where the, the other person in the conversation is you, the reader. So I was aware that I would only really release something as a book. And um, I, we just sat down and did it. It's one of those things, you know, as I said earlier in this interview, if you want to get something done, at some point you've got to do it. Sure. We are sadly run out of time and I've, uh, I've got so many more questions, but this is a half hour show and that's what I committed to and that's what it is. But we always end with four quick fire questions, are you, which frankly seem quite trite after the the depth of the conversation and thought that we've had during the chat but i'm going with it anyway because that's what it is your favorite pizza topping 
these are not going to be quick answers. <laughs> <laughs> the questions can be quick. I um, I don't have a specific pizza topping. Okay. I don't eat meat, so most of the pizza toppings that people really excite people are kind of out the window. I mean, well, mushroom is a very popular one on this podcast. Really? Oh, I, yeah. I like. Oh, it's got. To, I'd have to have chilies and red onions. Probably chili and red onions. <laughs> I also don't eat gluten and I don't eat dairy. So the idea of a pizza is <laughs> okay. Not not it's quite high on your list. Okay, your favourite movie. Oh, that's an easy one. My favourite movie is the film Network. Favourite person or people that make music. I just let my Spotify roll and I see where it takes me. I'm, you know, I'm not really one to even necessarily look down and see what, what I'm listening to. I just sort of let it go. I'll listen to anything. Uh, but, but I suppose I have to give you an answer to that. And my answer to that would be... Well, I like Tom Waits. Final question. Who would you rather fight? 100 tiny Joshua Jays or one massive Andy Gladwin? That's a very hard I love that you're I mean, giving this thought. I am trying to give it thought. Let's go 100 tiny Joshua J's. I've recently been playing Lemmings, so ah. it really feels to me like that could be a sort of Joshua J Lemmings, 100 tiny little Joshes, and I could just sort of, I could sort of manipulate them off the edge of a cliff or something. Perfect. Um, where can people keep up with your um, antics on that there internet of social things? I'm on Instagram and I'm on Twitter. I'm at It's Ben Hart, I-T-S Ben, H-A-R-T, because it's me, Ben Hart. And I'm also on Facebook and I suspect I'm also probably It's Ben Hart on there as well. Um, I have a website somewhere, but I think that that's going to be less up to date than my social. <laughs> I should put links to all of those in the show notes. Ben Hart, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure.